0: Welcome, I'm Paul Hunt, Senior Journalist at Aspermont Limited and this is a special edition, in-depth interview for Energy News. In this episode, we follow up on the progress of one of Australia's most exciting oil and gas plays. Empire Energy is an ASX-listed oil and gas explorer trading under the ticker EEG. The Australian company is one of the first movers in the Beetaloo and MacArthur basins in the Northern Territory. Earlier this year, we spoke to Empire Energy Managing Director Alex Underwood. At the time, Empire had not yet drilled its first exploration well in the Beetaloo Basin of the Northern Territory, but we canvassed the project and we looked at the potential of the well and the resource it was targeting. In this edition, we speak again to Alex Underwood about the progress made so far, as Empire announces it has reached a total depth at its Carpentaria One exploration well, and on its way has hit more than just gas. Good morning, Alex. Welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Paul. Great to see you.
0: Last we spoke, Empire had not yet uh, drilled its well. Now you've reached a total depth of 1,916 metres. It's been an exciting journey. Uh, Preliminary results have been, quite frankly, astounding. Tell us about the results.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a real game changer for our company and the entire basin. So, um, you know, this is our first well in the Beedaloo Basin. Uh, it, we carried out a seismic program about 12 months ago, which showed us that these shales were extending into our tenement from the neighbouring Santos tenement. And uh, we've carried out a successful drilling program over recent weeks. And what has really surprised and excited us is that these shales, uh, while they came in uh, thinner, uh, sorry, shallower than we had anticipated, uh, they've remained a very thick. Uh, into our tenement, the total Velkerry formation is nearly a 1,000 metres thick in uh, the Carpentaria 1 well location. And what has really excited us is that this is the first well in the basin that has encountered liquids-rich gas. All other wells targeting the Velkerry to date were uh, encountered dry gas. Origin actually um, theorised that there was this liquids-rich window in the basin some years ago, and now we've proved it. So it's a very exciting development for us and the whole Basin.
0: Hitting liquids uh, when you're looking for gas, it's a exciting moment for Empire Energy. Um, and I remember seeing your share price move on that announcement. Exactly what do you mean by liquids? Um, what, what, what does that point to?
1: Yeah, so basically um, all all oil and gas reservoirs either contain dry gas, i.e. methane, uh, that tends to be typical, say, in the coal seam methane uh, fields of uh, Queensland, uh, or they can contain oil. Um, but it, in in between oil and uh, dry gas are what's called liquid hydrocarbons. So these are longer chain, heavier hydrocarbons than gas. Um, you know, such as butane, uh, propane, um, and and pentane. Um, some of those heavier ends are are often referred to in the US context as condensates. And what's exciting about this is that those heavier-end hydrocarbons tend to attract higher market prices than dry gas and so therefore offer the potential to enhance the economics of our activities.
0: Several years ago, and uh, the Beetlew and MacArthur weren't really expected to hold the resources uh, that you believe could be there and to some extent have proved already. For a long time, it was generally accepted that... Uh, the beetle and these these shales uh, were too geologically old uh, to produce or hold gas or petroleum resources and liquids. Um, you've proved that wrong, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I mean uh, I don't come from a geological background, but I've uh, I find the the geology absolutely fascinating. And you know this this basin is a very special basin. Um, these are some of the oldest source rocks in the world, around one point four billion years old. Um, most oil and gas accumulations around the world come from rocks that are around 300 million years old. So they are very old compared to normal rocks. Um, And you know, the the common wisdom in the industry uh, for a long time was that these rocks were too old and that they either didn't contain hydrocarbons or that um, they'd been overcooked, which means the temperatures of the rocks get too high and it ultimately becomes carbon dioxide sitting in the rocks. Um, You know, uh, due to some fortunate circumstances over the last 1.4 billion years, um, these rocks have stayed in place and they've uh, gone up to just the right temperature to um, become gas, or in our case, liquids-rich gas, and they've stayed there stably for a very long time. So, um, really exciting uh, developments.
0: This well, uh, Carpenteria One, was targeting uh, or two targets. There was the Velcroi, uh, as you mentioned, and a thousand meters thick, um, which is incredible and mm. not something that that we. I don't think we've seen onshore Australia before. Mm. Um, can you give us a bit more context around these two targets and exactly what you found?
1: Yeah, sure. So we were expecting that the uh, the Kayala shale would come in at about twelve hundred meters depth. Uh, That was a secondary target with a relatively small resource assessed. Uh, And then then, uh, the Valkyrie, a much larger target, we were anticipating between about 2,200 and 2,800 metres. Um, In fact, it's all a lot shallower than we had anticipated, but pleasingly, um, it's actually stayed thick in the Valkyrie. So we did not encounter the Kyala shale, which was our secondary target, um, but we have encountered the Valkyrie. And as you mentioned, it's incredibly thick. Um, you know, I would stress that not all of that 1,000 metres of thickness is ultimately going to be pay mm. um, but we're already seeing from our results, uh, which we recently announced to the ASX, that within the Middleville Kerry shale, which um, looks to be the most promising, there are multiple zones within that that are around 50 metres of net thickness each. Um, so we have the Middleville Kerry B, uh, the Middleville Carry A, the Middleville Kerry C, and also a zone that um, is really only entering prominence now, which, which sits between the A and the B. So, you know, across those zones, that is several hundred metres of, of net thickness that we can pursue. And, and if, you, if you go back to the US shale context, you know, the, the, there is a lot more resource that we can look at here compared to say the Marcellus shale where typically they just have one zone of 30 to 50 mm. metres to pursue. We've got these multiple stacked pays uh, that we can pursue.
0: Let's jump back to liquids for a moment, because this is obviously a huge um, development for Empire. I mean, as you as you said, um, it's often referred to as condensate, but it really does change the uh, financial and uh, commercial well, commercial uh, size of your uh, asset. Can you explain to us how the liquids-rich gas is going to be more valuable than the dry
1: gas? Yeah, sure. So again, if I go back to the US context where the vast majority of shale development has occurred globally, um, there are a number of basins across the US such as the Marcellus and also others uh, that, are, that are known to Australian investors such as the Eagle Ford shale in South Texas that, that have a dry gas window, but then they also have a what they call a wet gas window in the US, which is the combination of dry gas and liquids and then ultimately an oil window as well. The US experience shows that um, dry gas tends to move quite easily through these rocks once they're hydraulically stimulated compared to oil because oil's more viscous, um, but dry gas attracts lower market prices. And so the sweet spot in some of these plays, such as the Eagle Ford, has actually been that wet gas transition window in between where you get the ability of the gas in the rock to really move the hydrocarbons to surface, um, but then the liquids enhancing, uh, you know, the economics of of development and that, and it can have quite a substantial impact on internal rates of return because the cost of drilling a well and and hydraulically stimulating it for dry gas or liquids, rich gas is essentially the same. Mm. uh, And yet you can strip off these higher value um, hydrocarbons uh, from the gas stream. Sell the gas as you would have otherwise and then and then achieve higher market prices um, for those liquids and you know th- this is a, an exciting development for us as a smaller company because it, it allows us greater optionality around early commercialization options yeah. um, we don 't just have to put dry gas into a pipeline we can look at ways to strip off those liquids um, and that that really in- increases our optionality around. Early cash flow generation and how we'll look to appraise and develop this project in the early days. The
0: fact that the targets were, well, the target was shallower than you uh, initially anticipated. Does that play much of a role in this?
1: Yeah. So um, again, go back to the U.S. shale experience because that's where all the data is yeah. um, on a global perspective. Um, shale formations across the U.S. can can economically produce from. From very shallow depths, right up to quite substantial depths, there are some trade-offs in this. Typically, um, you know, there are a number of factors that go into the cost of drilling and completing a well. A major cost in that is is actually getting to the target formation through the vertical drilling phase before you go horizontal and carry out your hydraulic stimulation job. Hmm. Um, and and that that impacts cost. Um, there 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 is potentially some trade-off in terms of the pressure regime. So typically the deeper you get, you do tend to get a bit more pressure and therefore potentially higher flow rates. Um, but, you know, looking at a lot of plays across the US with very similar characteristics to what we've encountered in this well, um, you know, we we think that there's definitely a potential for economic development uh, in, in the depths we're in. And that's what we look forward to demonstrating in the year ahead with our appraisal program that we can now um you know go ahead with on the back of this result
0: it's a great discovery before we get to the um appraisal side of it yep. um i would like to jump back uh to netherlands and associates who gave you a 2c resource of i think it was 13.7 uh, trillion cubic feet can you put that into perspective for us
1: yeah sure so it was um it was about 13 and a half trillion cubic feet of gas as the best estimate recoverable um best estimate is akin to a a p50 type number i should stress these are prospective resources this is not proved and probable reserves you know for when your listeners are, are listening to this um podcast um, Still have a that, bit more work to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Um, we we that that's across a massive area that extends right up through East Arnhem Land. We have, we have around 14 million acres of land under under lease. Um, of that 13 and a half trillion cubic feet of gas assessed, around 2.3 trillion cubic feet uh, was attributed to this area in which we've just drilled a tenement called EP187. And, and focusing on the Vel'Kerry shale. So this is only a, a subset of that enormous resource inventory. Mm. Um, you know, that, it, it's early days in terms of what the implications of this drilling program may mean for those resource assessments. Um, but one thing we, we can say definitively is that, um, you know, there will be changes because Netherlands Soul and Associates had assumed that this would be dry gas mm in this area. And so that was 2.3 trillion cubic feet of dry gas. Clearly, um, now that we've encountered the shales somewhat thicker than we had anticipated, and also with the presence of liquids, um, we anticipate that that may have material impacts on the resource assessment. I don't want to say what that may be yet because we are only in the early days of carrying out our technical analysis of these results. Um, but but it will certainly have an impact. You began
0: drilling, uh, I think it was about a month ago. It was in September using the Slumberjay Landrig uh, One Eight Three. Um, you looking to the future now. You've engaged a Texan uh, reservoir engineering firm. What was the choice behind that?
1: Yeah. So um, although we're a small company, um, this is a frontier basin, and Uh, you know, we are making decisions affecting massive amounts of hydrocarbons potentially in the future. And we believe that it's critically important for us to use world best practice in terms of the expertise that we rely upon for all of our activities. So, you know, one of the reasons we chose Schlumberger to carry out this job is that, first of all, the 183 rig is is a relatively big rig. It's a double drive rig, which meant that if we had an, any uh, unexpected drilling conditions, that we would be able to encounter them with that big rig. Um, as it played out, our drilling conditions are actually uh, very good, which was excellent. Um, another reason we use that that rig and that crew is that it's a crew that's worked together for many years. They have an excellent health and safety record and an excellent operational record, and we we just knew that for this program, we couldn't afford to have any mistakes and they did an excellent job Uh, in terms of WD von Gonten and co who are carrying out some of our analysis. um, They are not a name that's very well known in Australia, but in the U S they are really the gold standard in terms of analyzing uh, shale. Um, So they assisted us in the uh, collection of our log data. They're actually in real time in Houston, um communicating with the rig to ensure that the quality of data collected was uh, very high resolution um, and then also a critical role that they will play will be in the analysis of core that we've taken so we've taken 50 core samples across multiple windows of the middleville kerry shale and we ask we're going to send that core over to the lab in houston i've been to that lab before and it's a really exciting place to go because they have an unbelievable array of um, world leading technology. They've analyzed shale basins all across the US and even beyond the US. They've done a lot of analysis of this basin uh, and other basins around the world. And, and we, we formed the view that having that world best uh, technical analysis to allow us to really understand these rocks early was critical so that as we take every step along the way on the appraisal web, we've got the best quality advice to make sure that we can really maximise our results at each step along the way.
0: Well, let's take a look at the future now. I mean, um, you did you did mention this appraisal campaign going forward. Um, what does that look like? I mean, obviously you want you want to get working uh, over the next quarter. I would assume the quarter after that, at least in the first half of next year.
1: Absolutely. So. The first thing I would stress is that even in this one fault block where we have encountered these liquids-rich gas, we're covering a massive area. I mean, mm. this is, you know, a 40,000-acre fault block. If that was located in West Texas, somebody would be putting hundreds of wells on it within a few years. So this is a big area. Um, we're only just scratching the surface of this area. Um, we do have 2D seismic coverage over this area and now our, now our well penetration um, we see a, a critical next step as um, you know, undertaking hydraulic stimulation and carrying out some early flow tests, very similar to what Santos has just done with their Tanamburini one well, which was just down the road from uh, where we are. Um, the, the the point behind that uh, vertical hydraulic stimulation is that you open up around four to five stages across the Velkeri A B and C, and also this intra-A, B zone. Um, And then that allows you to find out some critical information. One, what sort of flow rate are you getting from each of those zones? But then also what is the proportion of gas versus liquids in each of those zones? Because what that will allow us to do is really optimize where we put our horizontal well bores and carry out multiple stimulation stages in future. And it will also allow us in the meantime, to start progressing prospective resources through to contingent resources, ultimately down the track, you know, we would look to convert them to proved and probable reserves. Yeah. Um, but flowing gas to surface is is where you can move to contingent, and that's a really important de-risking step along the path.
0: Will you be looking to drill another well over the next year or
1: so? Uh, it's it's too early to say. What we are doing is we are doing early planning uh, to ensure that uh, we have the the greatest operational um, optionality at all times. So I'll be heading out uh, to meet with the traditional owners of this area quite soon, which I'm really looking forward to doing. It's been it's been too long um, between meetings because um, mm-hmm. of of COVID nineteen related uh, shutdowns, but I'm really looking forward to. Getting out on country and, and meeting with the traditional owners again and talking to them about our plans going forward. Um, you know, other plans that that may eventuate over time um, would involve potentially some more seismic acquisition to further delineate this area we're in. We've already got a pretty good sense of, of um, what the formations are like in this area, given that we now have a well bore to tie to the seismic data. Um, But some further seismic delineation would be good. And then also we're considering, um, you know, additional drilling locations within this block um, to allow us to further delineate the resource across the block.
0: You did mention um, a few moments ago Santos's uh, Tanamarini one uh, well. Can you tell? Well, Origin is also out there drilling too with its joint venture partner Falcon, but um, you're out there alone at the moment. Can you tell me uh, what their results have uh, have told you about uh, this region that you're playing in? I mean, you're the only three uh, companies out there, and you're one of the first to sink a well that's come with these amazing results and hit liquids. But what can you tell? Well, what can you? What have you found out from other companies' results?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I should mention there are other companies active in this basin, but certainly there are three companies that are that are actively in the field this year. Hmm. Um, the, the results that Santos have generated quite recently are extremely encouraging. So they carried out a, a, a vertical frack in their Tanimberini one well. Um, the, the, the similarities in terms of the thicknesses of the Velkeri shale in our tenement and are uh, unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's highly consistent across those areas. The key difference being that they are a lot deeper than we are and, and, and more dry gas prone, um, but their results are highly encouraging. So they carried out the uh, vertical uh, stimulation job late last year. Um, they did an initial test. Uh, I think it was about 129 days. And, and that had uh, results that Santos reported as exceeding expectations. Um, I think from memory they came on at around 1.2 million cubic feet a day, and then um, you know settled down from there. But had a very very low decline, which is encouraging that you're starting to get those stable rates. Mm. Then as a result of COVID, they they shut in the well um, under the stay at home orders, um, and you know typically when you when you shut in a well, that can give you some further interesting information around the way that it's going to respond when you reopen it. Um, And as they've announced um, just in the last week or two, um, you know, the the latest round of flow testing from that same job have substantially exceeded their expectations. They announced that the initial production rate was around 10 million cubic feet a day. Um, Their joint venture partner has put out uh, a press release saying that over the first 90 hours, they got about 2.3 million cubic feet a day. And then Santos has said that over the first nine days, they've achieved one and a half million cubic feet a day. And that's highly encouraging because it's important to remember this is just a vertical frack with a few frack stages. Yeah. Once they go horizontal, they're going to be doing a lot more than four stages. You know, in the US, typically you do 20, 30 frack stages. And while it's not a directly linear relationship between the number of frack stages in a vertical and the flow rates that you'll get from proportionately more frack stages in a horizontal, um, it, it's a fairly linear relationship. And so, you know, if they can uh, drill horizontal wells as they're planning to do next year and, um, you know, get, get good frack jobs away and, and and you know, clean up those wells and get them flowing, I think we could see pretty interesting results next year. And, you know, again, going back to my experience in the US, I, I, financed a number of US shale plays when I was uh, at Macquarie Bank and it, it's very well known in the industry that these shales contain huge volumes of gas. The real step change event tends to be when somebody can achieve a commercial flow rate, because if you can get a commercial flow rate, it, 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 it changes um, the investor mindset to one of more of a, a manufacturing process um, and, and substantial capital. Uh, tends to flow behind it. So um, very encouraging results from Santos and, you know, I'm very pleased with it.
0: The Betaloo is uh, obviously a, a hot spot for for discussion at the moment. Um, I, I noted that uh, Energy Federal Energy Minister Angus Taylor uh, went down and checked out the rig and, and your well site. He's obviously very bullish about uh, your project in particular. Um, what does he hope will, will come out of your project?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we were, we were obviously delighted to um, be given the opportunity to host, um, you know, senior politicians on our drill site. Um, you know, I, I, when I've met with, uh, with senior politicians, I, I do remind them of the US shale experience where it was smaller companies that had that pioneering spirit of, of breaking these, uh, you know, basins open and, and getting them up and running. And they've certainly hurt us in that. Um, You know, I note that, um, you know, Prime Minister Morrison has put out his gas-fired recovery plan. He's got five strategic basins that he he sees as having the potential to increase the supply of gas in Australia's domestic market and put downward pressure on energy prices for households and help rebuild our manufacturing sector. And, um, you know, we were delighted that the Beedaloo has been selected as the first of those five basins as a priority target um, for acceleration of production. Um, you know we've got really strong support for this industry at the federal government level, but also critically, um, you know, really strong bipartisan support in the Northern Territory now. So mm. there was a pretty um, controversial election that just happened. Um, you know, the Labor Party and the Country Liberal Party went into that election saying that they supported this industry as long as it's well regulated to ensure that the environment is protected. Um, There was a third outlier party, the Territory Alliance, who um, had been cautiously supportive of our industry as early as January, but um, for whatever reason, they decided to change their mind at the last minute and say they were (laughs) against the industry. You know, we were really pleased that the people of the Northern Territory clearly voted um, in in, in support of strong economic development and job creation, because the Northern Territory really needs economic development right now. They've gone through a really hard time. Um, You know, with with COVID, it's just hit them even harder. And, um, you know, it was really pleasing to see that the people of the Northern Territory have really got behind this industry Um, You know, not everyone's supportive. There are people concerned about the environment, and we're working very hard to explain to people that we are responsible and really will protect the local environment. But, um, you know, there's a really strong pathway here now at both the federal and territory levels for for this industry to really now get off the ground and and get moving and and start contributing to Australia's economy and and, um, affordable energy supply. Well, I
0: guess that, that leads straight into a, into a question, which is uh, w- what's going to happen with your resources? I mean, if you, if you strike it rich, um, I mean, it certainly looks that way uh, from the preliminary results. Will this gas be going to, uh, you know, a manufacturing hub in the Northern Territory? Will it be exported? Will it uh, be piped uh, to the East Coast market?
1: I think there's an opportunity for all of those things to happen. And I'm, you know, I am genuine about that. So the first point I would make is that Australia's East Coast is facing major potential gas shortfalls in the next four to five years. Um, You know, the fact that we're talking about LNG import terminals on Australia's East Coast, just down the road from one of the world's major LNG export hubs tells you we've got a bit of a problem in this country about gas supply. Mm. Um, you know The Bass Strait fields are declining. There have been significant restrictions on onshore development in New South Wales and Victoria, which are finally being lifted somewhat. Um, so, you know, and, and, and also the Northern Gas Pipeline now connects Tennant Creek to Mount Isa. So gas can travel from these fields to the East Coast. Um, you know, uh, the, the Northern Territory government has put in place uh, a five-point plan for, um, you know, the, ensuring that this bounty that they have uh, can, can really b- provide sustainable economic development for the people of the Northern Territory for decades to come. So, um, you know, they're looking at uh, ways to attract gas manufacturing to Darwin um, you know, a lot of people in Australia don't realize that Darwin is already a major oil and gas hub. Mm. Um, there are two LNG export terminals there. One is the Darwin LNG project, which has been sending gas to Asia for a number of years. That's operated by Santos now, having bought out um, ConocoPhillips for about 1.4 billion US dollars just last year. Um, the ICTHIS LNG project uh, was developed by. Japan's INPEX and France's total around 40 billion US dollars of capital expenditure. Um, you know, it's, it's already a major LNG export hub and the Northern Territory government has the foresight to recognise that, um, you know, it can really grow from, from this starting point they have of LNG export um, through further LNG export, but also adding value to these molecules in Australia, which can help manufacturing and and real job creation um, in Australia. so you know the size of this resource really is big enough for everyone who needs it to have a piece of the pie um, if we can get those commercial flow rates from these wells. So in the industry that's what we're all super focused on right now, but if we can hit those economic hurdles, there'll be plenty of gas for the Northern Territory, plenty of gas to support LNG export and also gas to support Australia's east coast.
0: You mentioned Santos taking over uh, ConocoPhillips' assets in the Northern Territory. It does remind me, um, I guess, of a a large condensate uh, discovery that was made in 2018. And I'm talking about an offshore discovery, offshore Western Australia, a long way away from where uh, Empire Energy is in the Beetaloo, But... We saw Quadrant, a company called Quadrant, which was private, and um, its joint venture partner, Carnarvon uh, Petroleum, make a giant discovery of condensate and um, liquids-rich gas uh, in uh, offshore Western Australia. You've just struck uh, the Velkeri Shale, 1,000 metres. You've got liquids-rich gas. Is there a chance that there could be a takeover in the future?
1: Oh, look, I never say never. Um, we're not running this company to be taken over. Um, we see enormous value in, in our uh, assets and, you know, the, the company wants to, we, we really want to build something real here. We, we see enormous potential uh, and we really want to, um, you know, we want to move into commercial production and build from there. Um, you know, ultimately, if somebody wants to take us over, that's a decision for the shareholders, but, um, you know, From my position as the Managing Director, um, you know, I see an enormous amount of upside from here and um, I certainly wouldn't be looking to flip out too soon because we're really only just getting started on this journey.
0: Well, that's it. I guess uh, explorers in the Eagle Ford and um, some of these other Texan basins and onshore uh, shale uh, assets in the US, when they first uh, struck gas and struck oil, um, many of them went through a transformational change and ended up, um, major companies. Um, Mm. that's an opportunity obviously for empire to grow itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's an aspiration. I mean, obviously it's, it's very early days. Um, we've got to walk before we run. Mm. Um, you know, we, we think very carefully about strategy within this company and, and making sure that every dollar of shareholders funds is very carefully invested. Um, you know, there are lots of commercialization options for for our product here, but you know we we do have a process to follow here to appraise this discovery uh, and start working out the economics of future development, and then moving forward from there. So you know we're just we're just focused on um, you know uh, what we can control right now. Um, there is a lot of opportunity going forward, but um, you know we've just got to keep taking those. De risking steps along the way to to make sure that we can maximise our shareholders' value.
0: My guest is Empire Energy Managing Director Alex Underwood. Empire is a uh, gas explorer in the Northern Territories, Beetaloo, and MacArthur basins. The company is one of the first movers in the Frontier Basin region and recently drilled its Carpentaria 1 exploration well to total depth, and as we've heard, with astonishing results. Alex, when we look at uh, well, if we if we look at uh, just yesterday or just earlier this year, uh, the Morrison government did flag a potential uh, gas reservation policy. Do you think that's
1: needed? Um, I understand that um, you know Australia needs to make sure that we have enough gas for our own population before we uh, you know export gas i i fully understand that um and you know it's it's only fair that australians should enjoy affordable energy prices Um, you know i think there are multiple ways to improve energy prices and i think a key one of them is to do whatever you can to increase supply and i think the federal government really does understand that so removing regulatory barriers Making the ease of doing business easier um, and encouraging further investment. And I think that's really happening well. Um, I think also the federal government understands, uh, you know, with respect to reservation, that it's really important that, um, you know, you you don't kill the goose before it lays any eggs. So, Mm. you know, they they do understand that the costs of this industry are high, that in this industry, we take a lot of risk um to to discover resources Um, and and they do understand that if you put uh unreasonable um restrictions on what you can do with that product then um you know if you bring the price down too much then no one will develop it so you know i think this is a a classic example where where balance is required Um, and you know i i think that sensible decisions can be made to ensure that the industry flourishes um, while Australians do get a fair uh, allocation of uh, Australia's mineral wealth.
0: Alex, uh, one last question for you, and that is, Uh, Taking a look at your own financials at the moment, um, how how stable are you? And, um, you know, obviously the last 12 months have seen an unprecedented uh, economic shift for Australia. Mm. Um, You as a company, though, are are fairly stable. Um, Can you walk us through where you are currently?
1: Yeah, sure. So when I started on this journey with Empire Energy, our balance sheet was a bit of a mess, to be perfectly mm. honest, we had less than a million bucks cash in the bank. We had 38 million US dollars of debt. Um, and that was really supported against around $4 million of EBITDA against our US assets. So we were heavily overlevered. We had very poor access to capital. Um, and, and before we spent any money on our Northern Territory exploration programs, the first thing we had to do was get the balance sheet in order. So Um, You know, we came to an arrangement with our lenders, Macquarie Bank, who are also our second largest shareholder and highly supportive, um, whereby they converted a little bit of that debt to equity. That allowed us to raise some more money and get the debt down a bit more. Um, That allowed us to sell off some of our US assets, which brought the debt right down. Um, We've reduced debt by well over 80% in the last two years, while a lot of US oil and gas companies are going through bankruptcy and I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of companies. So, you know, we've got the debt right down. Um, and, you know, we have really strong support from our shareholders. So, you know, just in the last, uh, year or so we've, um, you know, we've done placements at 40 cents a share. We raised $10 million, sorry, $12 million. That was before COVID came and really smashed global markets. Mm. Um, we did go through a downturn with everyone else um but you know we were able to oh, that was make the whole energy room. sector wasn't it yeah i mean i i remember staying up late like late one night and watching <laughs> gas go to uh oil go to negative forty dollars yeah. a barrel and i don't think we'll ever see that in our lifetimes again well i certainly hope not anyway yeah. um you know gas got down to 25 year lows in mm. q2 you know the, the 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 energy markets went through major dislocation but we went into that downturn pretty well positioned with our debt under control and cash balances improved. Um, and so that allowed us to think strategically about what to do with our Northern Territory assets. We, we canvassed the views of a lot of shareholders saying, you know, the world's, the world's going through a pretty tough time. Should we keep going? Should we pause? Um, the resounding view of our shareholders was, let's just keep momentum going with this program and because our balance sheet was in a strengthened position, we were able to do that. Um, more recently, we've, we've seen really strong support from the capital markets. Um, so we did a, a $10 million placement um, just about six weeks ago at 30 cents a share. Um, that was done at a pretty tight discount to the prevailing share price. We got very, very substantial over-demand from the market to participate in that raise. Um, and also really pleasingly, uh, a number of our shareholders held options that were issued in conjunction with a capital raising two years earlier, um, and we saw a very high exercise rate on those options, um, which brought in another 8.1 million dollars. 1.6 million of that came from directors of the company, including me. So you know we've put in over six million bucks of our own money over the last two and a half years. Um, where we stand now is that at the conclusion of this drilling program, um, where we've carried out all the work, um, you know, we expect to have around $14 to $15 million cash left in the bank at the end of that program. Um, and, you know, that, that puts us in a really strong position, you know, it allows us to, to think strategically about what to do next. Um, you know, we don't have to go racing back to the markets to carry out our um, hydraulic stimulation, for example. Yeah. Um, and so we're in a really good position and we can um, move forward.
0: Alex Underwood, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you very much. Great to talk. Cheers.
0: Energy News is Australasia's most in-depth and comprehensive news service for oil and gas, hydrogen and renewables. You can find out more about our region's energy markets, the operations and policy changes happening, along with our stories covering law, technology and workforce changes at energynewsbulletin.net. This podcast was produced by Aspermont Limited, news for business.